My friend, welcome to episode 417 of the 200 Churches Podcast. What do you say to people who have no choices? What if you gave them some amount of choice, some agency, moral agency, something slaves were not considered to have in the ancient world? She says, Peter gives them moral agency. And that's a huge gift. But it's still very tricky. And I think it's fine to stop and say, this is really tricky. This passage has been used by Christians to keep slavery going. And we need to recognize. And sometimes it's going into that history a little bit and saying, you know what? This would be, we need to look at this a little more closely. Thank you for joining us on the 200 Churches Podcast. For more than 10 years, we've been providing ministry encouragement to pastors of small churches. Allow me to introduce one of those pastors, Jeff Cady, one of the co-founders of 200 Churches and the lead pastor of Community Heights Church in Newton, Iowa. Take it away, Jeff. Thank you, Angela. This is the 200 Churches podcast. My name is Jeff Cady. I am your host today. I'm also the lead pastor at Community Heights Alliance Church in Newton, Iowa. That's my day job, but I'm going to, don't worry, I'm going to keep my day job. Today, however... I want to ask you, do you have any of the volumes yet of the new international commentary on the New Testament? These books are beautiful. I mean, it's beautiful covers, slip covers on these commentaries. They are works of art, both academically as well as scholarly works. They're just wonderful commentaries. I have been getting one after the other after the other as I've needed them in my sermon prep and in my study. And I think I have, I may have about 10 of them at this point. I certainly don't have the whole set that is available. But my friend, Dr. Janine Brown from Bethel Seminary in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, she is writing the volume on 1 Peter. And this is so much fun, so much fun to be able to pick up a commentary and read through a commentary that is written by somebody you know is a lot of fun. But to have a set that is so beautiful and so helpful, and then to be able to talk to somebody who's currently writing one of the volumes and then to have a conversation with her That's what today's episode is. We kind of geek out just a little bit on 1 Peter and on just things surrounding what she's writing about and the teaching and the theology of 1 Peter, some of my experiences in 1 Peter, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and just the topics that uh, Peter is writing about. It's so much fun. Dr. Brown She's focused much of her research in writing on the Gospels and on hermeneutics and on interdisciplinary integration. So she's written uh, with co-authored a book with a psychologist on the integration of theology and psychology. I believe that's episode 199 of our podcast. And that was just fascinating. She's published three commentaries on Matthew's gospel. She's written a book called Scripture as Communication, now in its second edition on biblical hermeneutics. And she's also written a commentary on Philippians. She's a member of the NIV translation team. She's an editor for the NIV study Bible. And her current writing project includes a commentary on 1 Peter, the New International Commentary on the New Testament. She's got just a ton of articles and essays, and she's just a fun, fun lady. The courses that she teaches at the seminary, hermeneutics, New Testament survey, New Testament explorations, Greek, Matthew, John, Philippians, and now First Peter. She's a delight to talk to. And if you are planning on preaching or teaching through First Peter, this will just give you a little maybe introduction, some insights into First uh, Peter. And I'm glad to share this with you. This is my conversation with Dr. Janine Brown. Janine Brown, you truly are a friend of the show. If there's any such thing as the show, 
you're my friend, you're Johnny's friend, and you're joining us again. So welcome. Glad to be here. Love to be on your show. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that I've already introduced you in the intro, but I do have to say that some of my fondest memories at Bethel are in your Greek class, along with, what was her, Liz, is it Liz Nixon? Lynn Nixon. Lynn, Lynn Nixon. Man, mm-hmm. I was so close. You were. I was so close. She's and taught she Greek for us, taught Greek for us for many years, yes. Yeah, yeah. So that was, uh, and it was good for me at the time, at the stage in my life, it was good for me to sit and learn Greek from a woman professor. I needed that then. And it helped that you remind me of my kid sister. Oh, wow. That's fun. <laughs> so you're learning Greek from your kid sister. Who knew, right? Hey, it's, hey, it's, uh, it, it was good. In my development and in my worldview, that was a very positive uh, opportunity. And, uh, and, and the fact that you're on the NIV translation team, to know somebody on the NIV translation team was just, it was kind of exciting. And I've used the NIV since I was 30 years old. Hmm. And then the new 2011, you know, came out yeah. and that's already been 12 years now. It's so crazy. Right, right. And we're working on the revision. The NIV team has been a standing committee from its inception. So it's always revising. The assumption was revision always will need to happen. So who knows if not in the next 10 years more something yeah the next one will come out there are still people still hanging on to their 1984s mm-hmm. yep that's not a bad thing either <laughs> I've got a lot of old bibles on my shelf yes yes well hey you've done a lot of work in first peter and i remember when i was in high school i spent one year in a christian high school and every month we had to we had to memorize a different passage, and we had to memorize the part of First Peter chapter three. Hmm. So early on, I got you know deep into at least one of the chapters, which kind of made First Peter you know familiar to me. Yeah. And uh, and you've written, have you finished your commentary no. on First Peter? I have started it. That's a good thing. All I started, right. but not finished it. But I um, I have a couple of journal articles I published on First Peter a while ago. So I've done some publishing in the book, and now it's time to press into a commentary. So tell me, in terms of Greek, John being real easy and mm-hmm. simple, and Hebrews being more complex, where does First Peter fall in? It's closer to Hebrews. Oh, really? Yeah, it is. It's not an easy book to translate. Hmm. Um, and I... It was the book that I learned Greek in my intermediate Greek class in seminary at Bethel Seminary under Tom Schreiner. And I started to teach it for Greek exegesis, the upper level Greek course, when I first started teaching in around 2000 or so. But it was really, it's tougher Greek. So um, I moved to Paul more recently. I think you had Philippians. Maybe we went through Philippians. I think you're right. Yeah. I, that was because I was nice by that time in 2000. Huh. <laughs> Because Greek, yeah, the Greek of First Peter's, I I like it. I mean, I I, uh, you know, it's I've waded through it enough times that I really enjoy reading through it. Um, but it is not the easiest. So, but it is the the book that I first studied when I, um, besides John, when I learned Greek once we got out of the beginning Greek class. So, it, it's part of my journey. I have to say, when I was growing up, I I remember First Peter in my home church in my home context to be a book that our church had great affinities with, or at least I felt like this book described our experience of small minority beleaguered group of Christians Mm. in the 1970s. I mean, and and now I look back and go, Hmm, that was an interesting way to have absorbed the messages of first Peter that I thought it really was all about us we were well, just like those. Yeah, right, yeah. right. And and then I got to seminary and you know studied it. In it used it was a Greek class, so I was reading it, studying it there. And and frankly, um, I'm a singer songwriter. I mean, like I don't. Nobody can hear me out there on that. But I mean, I, I write music. I sit at the piano. I write music. It's the way I kind of journal. I think. I think. I have two songs that are on First Peter. One from right about that time when I was studied in Greek, there was something about the letter itself that was very forming and that was spiritually informative. And the themes I heard developed over time. In other words, they were all there, but the ones that really spoke to me 
um, personally, spiritually, formatively, began to shift a bit as I moved from kind of the a little more woe is me kind of Christianity. I grew up in kind of an ER Christianity, I would say. Okay. Woe is us, you know, yeah. um, to a little more of the the emphasis on hope and also the emphasis on really thinking about why we might say we are suffering. Is the suffering really for being a Christian? Um, I have to say that sometimes I see Christians act and I think you might be suffering just because you're a kind of a jerk. Can I say that? You know, I mean, there are times when you, you wonder if, if their persecution yeah. is coming because they're acting in, you know, for, for Christ they're, um, or, or they're just they bring it on themselves. being very yeah. socially aware or might just say something to be kind of rude. Like, huh? Because hmm. I think the, um, I think Peter in the letter helps us to avoid asks Numbers of times, kind of asks for a check-in. It says, make sure it's not for doing evil that you suffer. If you really, really were to suffer for doing good, you know, he kind of raises the question mark at a number of points that I think presses the readership into self-evaluation. Circumspectly thinking through what it might look like to be a Christian in this context and whether suffering is really an inevitable end. And the the, 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 uh, the impact of that kind of question asking or raising the possibility they could suffer for doing evil, not for doing good, is this sort of reflective stance, self-reflective stance toward one's world, the people around you, the situations that are happening, that I think still is a valuable reflective exercise today. So I've come from this place of, yes, that talks about us to, hmm, I think we should think whether, think deeply about whether it talks about us, that this is, a, is this applicable? Because I do, uh, people around the world suffer for being a Christian. I have no problem affirming that truth and reality. And I think Peter asks us to ask the question and yeah. not just assume. Well, and I think in is it the NIV or the King James? I don't remember that that starts in I think somewhere in chapter three, but and if you suffer yes. for righteousness sake. Yeah. Right? In other words, so you may suffer, but it but it's not always for righteousness sake. But if it is, yes. then you're blessed. And in yeah, chapter two, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is to slaves, household slaves. How is it your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and doing it? I mean, th- there are some kind of really tricky issues just to navigate yes. there in terms of slaves yes. and the power that they don't have. But then in chapter three, he broadens to the whole community, 313, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer, and it's the, he uses an optative there. Okay. Greek class, we didn't spend a lot of time on optatives because they don't come up much. Twice in First Peter, sometimes not in a book at all. And it's like, it's kind of like the if, even if, even if perchance, perhaps you should suffer. He's trying to raise in their minds the idea that they should be asking the question. If, 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 if you should suffer for doing what is right, even if that should happen, you are blessed. So there's this kind of raising the bar for self-analysis to say, hmm. Peter doesn't think it's going to be very likely that I suffer for doing good. So I better make sure that if I'm suffering, it's really because I was doing good. I was following Christ. I was being true to Jesus. He says then, being, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Set apart Christ as the only Lord. And if that's the reason somebody gives you a hard time, then so be it. Anything else off the table? You know, don't be adding all sorts of other things to that Christ as Lord. That is the piece. If somebody's offended because you say Christ is my Lord and you act in ways that show Christ is your single and only Lord, then suffering, if it comes, you're blessed. What chapter and verse is that now? 315. It's kind of the heart of the whole thing. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Yeah. Yeah. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. So let's just jump. Let's jump way out of order now for a second. You just quoted a verse that's often quoted in Mm -hmm. Christian context. 
Is that verse often quoted in relatively good context, or is it really kind of taken out of context and the context sheds a really interesting meaning to it? Being ready to give an answer is used as the apologetic verse, right? I mean, and that's not a bad usage. I think the framing does help us here. Uh, here are some particular things to ground it in. For the hope that you have, or the um, it's the hope and who men, it's the hope among you. I like to think of it as our common hope. We often think in you, you know, kind of as a singular, this is a plural. It's it's your Christian hope. It's, it's the, the hope of the community. Hmm. Not that you don't have it yourself, but it, it is this shared yeah. help. And I like to co- translate it kind of as, as your common hope. Because it puts it all, you know, this is not the single evangelist, which isn't a bad thing, but it is the 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 community that is ready to give an answer too for the hope that they share. It's a hope we share together. I think that enriches it. It doesn't, you know, shift it dramatically. But then the um, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So gentle, respectful. I mean, that's got that's that's where he lands. I mean, he both answers are important, but they're they're together. The answer of do this in a respectful way, in a gentle way, a way that is as I mean, I think tolerant as possible. You know, I mean, tolerance is 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 a negative word in many contexts, but I just think there's something about do it in a way that is seeking not to offend. Don't seek to offend. Give an answer in a way that is winsome, is thoughtful, is sensitive to the person you're talking to. So all of that, I think, helps to hear it. And to note that this is the first time in the entire letter where explicitly they're told they can give a word of witness, if you want to put it that way. Witness becomes explicit here for the first time. Hmm. That's a long time to wait. Yeah, yeah. Would you say... Would you say that? <clears throat> would you say that that uh, would lead us to lean toward Irenic in our approach to people versus the polemic, which is kind of our cultural approach yeah. to communication? Often, yeah, I, I, Irenic is a a value of Bethel. You might know that. I mean, if people use language, Irenic. I mean, this Irenic spirit, this gentle, thoughtful, reflective way of being with other people. And um, Irenic. Now, I didn't learn that word, I mean, I learned it way, way back in Greek yeah. and I'd forgotten it, but yeah. define it just for a second, just explain what that is. Yeah. I mean, we use it, it's part of Bethel's heritage. This Irenic spirit is part of kind of our mission or our, our, our thinking about who we are to be, you know, so I'm finding it in that context. And it is this, this sense of um, gentle answer, peaceable, um, uh Caring about how it comes across, not just that the answer is right, but that it comes across in a winsome way, in a way that is wanting to build dialogue rather than shout answers. Now, your Greek prof, Janine, I tossed you a softball. Well, Irenaeus peace, yes. There you go. <laughs> yes, but I mean, you know, you. I also taught you that etymology is not the most important thing in the world necessarily either so <laughs> but yes well, in that case it is a good is a good indicator of what the word means yeah well the name irene people mm-hmm. would know the name irene and irene in greek yes, right means peace. means peace yes, it's a good so word. that's that's helpful now the other word polemic talk about the nature of that word the origin maybe the meaning no i haven't thought about the um the etymology you tell me I, I'm asking. I'm asking. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, just, don't I mean, know. I think the I way it's know. used now is is uh, certainly um, to kind of it, it kind of puts up walls. Wouldn't hear the, the polemic. It's the argument. It's meant generically as an argument, but it's come to have a, a strong negative connotation. Almost pugilistic. Yeah, yeah. Very, yeah. Wow, that's quite a word. I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, this, this this how we are as Christians is important to the letter of 1 Peter is important to the author. Um, an interesting piece is that while this is the first sort of outward missional word that's mentioned, a witness as a verbal witness, um, wives in the household code of 1 Peter 3 verse 1 
are called to submit to their husbands and particularly their unbelieving husbands so that if anyone, any of them do not believe the word, they might be won over without words by the behavior Mm. of their wives. So wives are kind of, I don't know if they're expressly forbidden, but they're pressed toward their behavior of submission because for them to say to their husbands, come to my God, come worship Jesus and not your gods is a very countercultural thing in that context. Mm. Um, um, Plutarch in his advice to bride and groom says, now wives, you are to take your friends from the friends of your husbands, Mm. not your own. Um, And first among these is the gods. In other words, you are to follow his gods. That's the way you go when you get married. You go toward the gods of your husband and the husband's family and the household and the ancestry. You bring your own God with you. No. So for him to say, submit yourselves to your own husband so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be one. Ah, what? They may be one over to Jesus, to your God. I mean, he's saying something so countercultural. And he says, well, and do it without words. <laughs> Just better yeah. to let your behavior show that this Jesus is worth following. Because, man, you don't, you know, it's you're on really tricky territory. Um, and we can tell it's tricky territory because in verse 6, he, he likens them. He says, you could be like Sarah in this regard who obeyed Abraham, called him Lord. You are Sarah's daughters, if you do what is right and do not fear any intimidation. He uses strong language there, both the verb for fear, usually phobia, but also another word that's just an intense kind of intimidation. And who are they going to be intimidated by? Unbelieving husbands who say, no, you don't get to go to that um, meeting of those Christians. And Christians in chapter four is used only three times in the New Testament is where Christians show up. And it's chapter four, it's clearly a derogatory term. I mean, you know, it, it comes derogatorily into the mix. And Peter says, don't be ashamed to be called one of those. When you read Sarah's daughters, I thought about Abraham's children. We're mm. sons and children of Abraham when yeah. we, like Abraham, place our faith yeah. you know, in God. And is there any play on that there? Is there anything to be... Taken? Yeah, well, I mean, Abraham has not been mentioned prior in the letter, but yeah. language that's applied to him um, in Genesis and the Psalms, he's a, a wanderer and a you know transplant. He's an exile. Um, the language of exiles in chapter one one and in one um, seventeen, the foreigner. Those are two terms. The Greek terms are applied in the Greek Old Testament Septuagint to Abraham, both mm. in Genesis and in, in a psalm that says my ancestors were exiles and foreigners. So it's very much playing upon this idea that, you know, you are to emulate these past biggies of the faith, right? Hmm. And these these nomads, they were nomadic in their yeah. real existence. And they became, that becomes for the psalmist, this type or this metaphor for one's life of living as a foreigner and an exile and alien. And both terms are brought together in chapter 211. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. Those are two terms that anchor the book. Yep. Um, and yep. a really great book sitting down here somewhere, Strangers to Family by Shively Smith. She teaches at Boston College, I believe, maybe it's Boston University. Great book on the whole idea of um, – Diaspora and First Peter's invention of God's household, strangers to family. Okay, so the household, the living stones, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, we, we're a temple, we're, mm-hmm. we're this house being built. And you use the term when we were talking about having this episode with you, uh, you use the term household codes. Mm-hmm. So for those of us who aren't really familiar with that, Bring the cookies down a little bit on the mm-hmm. lower shelf, and because yeah. we've heard this from different, especially of Paul's writings, household codes. Yeah, what does that mean? Because we don't use that term today. No, though we have conventions for family. I mean, it's in the air; it's in the air we breathe. We think if this is what a good family looks like, here's a normal family. I mean, those aren't necessarily all viewed the same by everybody, but we have right. cultural types. I always think of the 
Do you remember the show Father Knows Best from the yeah. 50s? Or yes. 60s? Yeah. Yeah. That kind of show kind of both uh, set, you kind of lived within this. This is what house, this is what kids, yeah. you know, families Father are like. Harriet yeah. type of a Son thing. and two daughters and a dog and mom and dad, um, nuclear family. And, but also played on that a little bit, you know, would press the boundaries a little bit. There's a, there's a, um, one of the, oh, one of the episodes. episodes, thank you, yeah, where yeah, Betty yeah. wants to would be, you know, like does sort of um, engineering, um, um, with the engineering where you look through a little scope and you look out and you plan the, um, you know, the, the surveying. <laughs> thank you. Does some <laughs> surveying and does that kind of engineering. Anyway, but she does it because she, um, she likes the look of the guy who's, you know, the young man who's teaching it. You know, of course, it's sort of, sort of it's both sexist and kind of pressing the boundaries all at the same time. Yeah. Anyway, but so we have those kinds of things that, tell us how we ought to be kind of implicitly household codes were um, out of the Greek world and then became really influential in the Roman world as well. So the Greco Roman household code is a form that emerges before the first century, but is quite alive and well in the first century. And in fact, Aristotle and Plato and their household codes were kind of getting a resurgence around that time um, that tell basically told a householder or what we may, the, the Roman pater familias, which is the head of the household, told the head of the household how to govern his family. So told the guy with all the power how to take care of, how to keep slaves in line, how to be careful about uh, one's wife when he did be considerate, but also be aware um, that a wife like with too much influence and power because of wealth brought in potentially, you know, could could upset the apple cart and, and shift the balance, which was also to have the head of the household, the guy at the top, kids. You know, to, it told you how to live in your context. And it was written by elite males, two men. Um, and so it had that flavor to it. Well, it's really interesting to look at the fact that in the letter of First Peter, about a quarter of the letter is a household code. From hmm. chapter 211 through 312, there's a little bit of a framing introduction and then conclusion. And but what you see is first 13, everybody, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. It begins actually with a look at the whole kind of governing context. That's not very usual in a household code, but it is usual to see the house as kind of a microcosm of the polis of the whole city, of the whole state. But then we have in verse 18, slaves speaks to them. Three, one, wives speaks to them, and then three, seven, husbands. So that kind of what's unusual is that those with least power are addressed first and most with most material. Hmm. Husbands get a verse and they get a huge warning. Your hmm. prayers will not be answered if you don't do what I say. <laughs> it's, it's so it's interesting. He takes the code and he kind of tweaks it to be more maybe unsettling from, you know, to the householder, the master, the husband, um, and to be very much granting agency, giving some power to slaves and wives in that context, especially when he, in both cases, he says, slaves in reverent fear, submit, this is one, 218, submit yourselves to your masters, not only those who are good and considerate, but also, also those who are harsh or intolerant. He's talking about slaves who don't, whose 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 masters aren't thrilled that they're following Jesus, and then he talks to wives whose husbands aren't thrilled that they're following Jesus, and he gives them some sort of way to navigate a virtually impossible situation, really difficult situation. Mm. So he's doing some things with these standard household codes that are quite interesting, um, and people have written about this. This is not like me dreaming this up. Um, David Balsh has his, you know, a work of over like 30 plus years ago, maybe it's 40, um, on the household code that talks about standard household codes of the time and how he's playing with the form, but still using the form. And using the form to help them live in tricky situations, right in their households, in society, not remove themselves from what they can't remove themselves from, but live well as believers in Jesus, holding Jesus to be the only true Lord in a time when the emperor claimed to be Lord. And he talks about the emperor, whether, you know, submit yourself to every human authority, whether to the emperor or to governors. But then he does something very interesting in verse 17. He says, honor everybody, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. 
Notice what he's done? He's put the emperor on the level of everybody else. Honor everybody. And he uses the same word in the last of those, honor the emperor. Fear God. You know, a worship term, fear fits. But no, not, you don't worship the emperor, even though people were required to worship the emperor at emperor cults. No, honor everybody, honor the emperor. Implicitly, and what were the two in between that? What were those two? Lo- love the family of believers. Love, okay. Which is his call to love in the book is to the to the family of believers. Yeah. One, twenty-two, four, seven through eleven. He doesn't call them to love outsiders, even though Matthew tells us to love our enemies. He, he just he's focused on kind of managing and living well in this time, and he love the believers, fear God, honor everybody, honor the emperor. It's so is, interesting. Is there anything to the order of that? I mean, because God is third there with emperor being fourth. Yeah. You had talked about the order between slaves and wives and husbands. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, th- I think it's, it's like an inclusio, you know, that kind of idea okay. of uh, the yep. bookending of the honor, honor. Yep. Um, it's keep, you know, it, it's doing what you wouldn't expect at the end. Honor everybody, love the family believer, fear God. You could even say worship the emperor. Oh, you could, but Peter would never yeah. would. Honor. It's like, it's, it's uh, honor. Wait, I mean, it, he, he builds it, I think, in a way that you go at the end, oh, oh, well, that's interesting. And it's implicit, but it's still, hmm, you so, know, it's inviting a different way of thinking about the emperor than they were used to. So years ago, I was preaching from First Peter, and I was in a college town, and a new college professor moved into town, and he was checking out churches online. And he listened to some of the messages, and he messaged me, he emailed me and said, Hey, Pastor Katie, I'm concerned about your preaching from First Peter. It sounds like you're pro-slavery. Mm. So we went back and forth. Now, this was a Saturday night, wow. and we're going back and forth on email. And I told him, well, you need to listen to the whole message. So 25 minutes later, he emails me and says, I listened to the whole message. I'm more convinced than ever. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that you're pro-slavery. Now, the the professor now I don't know if this has anything to do with anything, and I'll probably get hate mail for this. But the professor happened to be Asian, and so I don't know as an Asian man if he maybe was more sensitive or heard things that maybe I wouldn't hear or didn't intend and didn't realize could be inferred. Um, I, I never quite figured yeah. that whole thing out. So two eighteen through twenty five is a tricky spot. Yeah, yeah. And um, I did some lectures this fall. One of them was on the First Peter Household Code. And I, I stopped partway through talking about 18 through 25. And I said, I think we have to be really careful here and thoughtful about how we preach this. Because Peter and all of his audience is living in a time when there's no one conceiving that there isn't going to be slavery. It's an institution deeply hmm. burrowed into the first century world. Now, I believe that the New Testament and Christianity actually plants seeds for the abolition of slavery. What happened we in our context uh, in the Western world in the 19th century, mm-hmm. for example, way too late maybe, but you know, in any event. Um, but I, I stopped and I, I have found it really helpful to rely on people, um, non-white scholars yeah. who help us here. Dennis Edwards, an African-American New Testament scholar, amazing scholar, at North Park Seminary has a commentary in the Story of God series on this, uh, this letter. And Shively Smith, who is telling about strangers to family, is an African-American New Testament scholar. And they hear some, some, um, I don't want to say liberating, but liberative strands in those words to slaves because of the agency that it grants them to act on their own behalf and treating slaves with agency is an unusual thing in the ancient world. Anyway, Mm. when Aristotle would call them living tools, slaves are things you do things with, right. (laughs) To get things accomplished. Mm. Um, No slaves are treated with agency and they're the ones that are given the example of Jesus. Now it doesn't mean the rest of us can't see the example of Jesus in 21 through 25, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. But there are words given to the slaves in these contexts, the household slaves who are struggling with masters who do not believe in 
their own savior, the one, the savior they, they call Lord. Um, mm. And so there's something very, I mean, they're gifted Jesus's example. Now you could say, well, Jesus example is told them just to shut up and put up, you know, but I think it's deeper than that. I think something's going on for people with a, between a rock and a hard place who, you know, they can't up and leave. It's not, they're not employees. It's not like, oh, I'm going to quit this job and go to another one. That's not what slavery is in the ancient world. They are stuck there. So how are you going to help them? And that's, I think, where Shively Smith starts the conversation and and thinks about it from the point of, what do you say to people who have no choices? What if you gave them some amount of choice, some agency, moral agency, something slaves were not considered to have in the ancient world? She says, Peter gives them moral agency. And that's a huge gift. But it's still very tricky. And I think it's fine to stop and say, this is really tricky. This passage has been used by Christians to keep slavery going. And we need to recognize, and sometimes it's going into that history a little bit and saying, you know what? This would be, we we need to look at this a little more closely. Yeah, and I think because as a white guy, I I wasn't feeling the sensitivity of that passage, and then I didn't come right out against slavery because I just assumed, well, yeah, everybody's against slavery. Why would I ever have to say it? So I think just that uh, with a little bit of, I just wasn't. Say it anyway, right? I I wasn't sensitive to that. I didn't, I never looked at it through the eyes of, uh, of a person of color. Yeah. You know, I never tried to, I never even considered it, but. But you were receptive to what he said. I mean, it it clearly caused you to think deeply. Well, it, a little bit more deeply, but it wasn't until years later, really, you know, that I honestly going to seminary for my master's degree just opened me up to, because we had to read books from authors who were people of color yeah. and from people from other, uh, other yeah. parts of the world, other cultures than ours, non-white, yeah. right. And non-Western. Right. And then you realize how much of helpful. our thinking has been shaped by Western white and often male authors. And so it's not that those are bad authors, but we, there's been a lot, we've, we've absorbed a lot. So how do we really diversify our reading list? That has been important for me um, in my work is to make sure that I'm, I'm reading from people who have a very uh, different cultural lens that can help open my eyes. The first time somebody said um, black theology, and then they asked the question, why is it black theology? Why isn't it just theology? Because mm-hmm. what's theology and what's black theology? Yeah. <laughs> and what we, makes it, you know, yeah. what's the standard, you know? So yeah. you've got this standard normative white mm-hmm. view, and then everything else is, you know, womanist theology. Let's have an adjective, right? Or so you just, yeah. Either you yeah. add an adjective to white or we stop using adjectives all the time for everything else and just say, this is a really good book on theology. Period. Yeah. Yeah. So that was helpful. So Janine, what else in first Peter? So you, you notice the household code. And so it's interesting how you say that I've never seen this in first Peter Peter before. I've never noted this, that it starts talking with slaves and then with, does it speak anything to children in there? It doesn't. And, um, and so there's no address from father to children or to children, which we hear in Ephesians. Um, And uh, Smith, Shively Smith argues, uh, and others have mentioned this, but she's really, she's really put her uh, finger on this one that um, because um, Peter wants to shape the Christian community uh, as this family, it's the household of God. Chapter four, four, we hear the language you are, you know, it first begins with the household of God. Well, that's the community, right? And he's already talked about, um, God as the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but also our own father, um, our own parents. Uh, since you call on a father in 117 who judges each work, person's work impartially, she want, that she says that the author is really saving that language of child and father for the community and God. She says that part of the household code doesn't show up because it's used in this broader framework. Hmm. And it might also be that children 
um, don't truly yet have the agency in their families. In other words, the way he shaped the household code is to take those groups with little power and give them agency. And they, there may not be, I'm sure there are children in the community, but it might not be that they have the agency. Their mothers yeah. need to step in for them. Right. Or the, you know, the, their parent who is a slave needs to step in and advocate. So it might be that I wonder if there's a protective piece there. You know, that though there are children in the community, um, they need to remain a little bit more hidden in the structure for some way, reasons, hmm. um, for the reasons that their advocates, their best advocates are, are their parents. Um, and in this case, their mothers and their, if their parents are slaves, um, the men and women who are slaves, you know, watching out for them within this system potentially. Um, it's an interesting thing to think about, kind of to imagine um, a household where some of these facets are going on and think about the children, which I don't always think about when they're not mentioned mm-hmm. and think about, of course, their children, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So is there anything else to talk about here in the household code from, what did you say? One. So 211 through 312, you know, the okay. way he, he kind of frames the whole thing. Um, in three, seven husbands, now he's speaking, of course, to husbands who are believers. There are some believing husbands in the mix. Um, otherwise he wouldn't have be able to address them directly. Husbands in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect, respect them, give them honor. The language of honor is there again as the weaker partner and as heirs, co-heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So this warning there's a warning. If you if you don't do this, if you don't live in as a, as a co-heir with her and in a way that gives honor, grants honor to her, you're I'm not going to be listening to you. I mean, or God won't be listening to you. I should say. Um, and then he draws on um, flip. Oh, sorry, Psalm 34 for the final kind of closing, and it it talks about. Uh, in that um, the Lord's eyes are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer, verse 12. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So there's kind of this double impact of the warning that you get both in 3.7, but also in 3.12, you go, oh, he's using a psalm that talks about me, you know, one way or the other, whichever way I'm going to decide. So it's kind of interesting that they get, the husbands get the fewest words, but they get the strongest warning. Which makes sense that, in that context. It just makes sense because they have more power to make their family members' lives wonderful or miserable. And these are believing in Jesus' husbands. So yeah. we're presuming that they're they're not hindering um, the worship of their family or anything like that. But it, 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 it calls them to really grant honor to a wife when honor is kind of a limited commodity in the ancient world. And, you know. Yeah. Do you um, think that term, hinder your prayers, is kind of representative of just their spiritual temperature, their spiritual life, not just specifically mm. when they pray, but literally your relationship with me. Mm. Yeah. No, I mean, I think because um, though I don't know that we have, you know, a kind of accommodation to pray always in, in this letter, um, there is, uh, of course, the implication that um, – uh, verse four, seven, therefore be alert and sober-minded so that you may pray. That prayer is the stance of the believer before God. It is, yeah, it is the temperature taking, isn't it? You know, connection to God and awareness of connection to God, that God is right there, ready to hear, ready to listen as people follow God's ways, right? Okay. Yeah, no, so, I think so so now, now just take a couple minutes and talk to me about chapter two, verses four through ten? let's see ten. Yeah. yeah. And just the 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 reality that if you didn't understand the Old Testament and you didn't have the Old Testament, because you know, we it's so true that we think of all oh, the New Testament, the New Testament, you know, we we just need the New Testament for today. It's got all the practical stuff for us. We're Christians, blah, blah, blah. But then you get to a passage like this, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and if you've never read the Old Testament, how much of that would you not get? Yeah, no, that's so true. This is and this is all of it. This is the identity formation section of the letter. This is how he wants them to think about themselves, right? So if you don't catch that in verse four, 
you know, the living stone is Jesus, of course. But then you, like living stones are being built, verse 5, into a spiritual house. Like you mm-hmm. said, it's a temple. That's a picture of the temple. But you say a spiritual house. Well, I mean, if you think, I mean, that he's playing on house language all the way through the letters. So if you don't hear that as temple, you won't have the sense of oh, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices. Oh, so we are to be like the temple. We ourselves, and as... Um, the priests would offer sacrifices that God called for and they were acceptable to God in the Old Testament context. Now, that's what we do. We do it, though not by offering literal sacrifices, but instead by, I think, living in line with, with God, what God expects and being and setting Christ apart as Lord and being distinctive as a community um, so if you don't hear that that's a temple, that's just really crucial, right? Because that's, and that fits with other New Testament calls and Ephesians and other places to be the temple. This is who you are. But then at the very end in eight and nine and 10, if you didn't know that verse nine evokes a lot of Old Testament texts, but a key piece is Exodus 19, five through six. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. This is language that's used of Israel in the Old Testament. And this community is has, I think, very, I mean, very, very likely has Jewish members of it, but it's probably more non-Jewish and a whole mix of different ethnicities um, that, you know, are living in Pontus, Galatia, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey or Anatolia. Um, it's this whole mix of people that are very, probably very distinct from each other. I mean, there's not a lot of unifying ethnic characteristics, my guess, in that community. Um, and they're different communities because they're into people in different areas. Um, and he's using the Old Testament identity of God to, to unite them in this superordinate identity, this kind of meta category, so that whatever their ethnicity, whether they're Jewish or more likely, whether the, you know many of them non-Jewish, but all these other ethnicities, they can say, "We are the people of God. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession." That idea of a priesthood being people who stand in the gap for the rest of humanity, stand in hmm. the gap and offer, yeah. you know, offer prayers, offer sacrifices, metaphorically, no, um, but also witness, speak a witness to the world, so that you can. Declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And then you take this passage, right, verse 4 through 10, and you 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 hover it over the book of Hebrews mm. and see where the magnets, the magnets yeah. as verses in Hebrews just grab some of those things. Yep. I don't know. Expand on them, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, Hebrews to, really get a lot of— To me, I could just totally— geek out, and I, that's a not a good term, but it's the closest I can come up with, to the the wonder, the the amazing, the, the bottomless truth in a passage like this, because you, you see this chosen people, and then you, you didn't get to verse 10 yet, but yeah. you, you're not a people, but now you are a people. And that's Hosea all over the place, you, right? Right, right, and how, how much drama is mm-hmm. in that than that prophet, right, and his message, and and they're pull, and he pulls it into this letter here, and there's just there's so much back to story. It's like the tip of the iceberg, yeah, right? We're is. looking at the tip here, but when you go down under and you see what it means to, I, I hadn't received mercy, now I have received mercy, yeah. and then 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 you take it and you run it all the way back into some of the patriarchs' lives. In in some of the Jacob and Esau, you know yeah. stuff. <laughs> it's just there's 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 roots into those yeah. original stories that emanated from from which emanated so much truth in our lives, even. Yeah, and all yeah, all the basic contours of the Old Testament show up at yes. different places, right? In First yeah. Peter, exile that theme. Yeah. But also, um, uh, kind of the the election. I mean, even the language of election can be mm-hmm. sometimes foreign to some traditions. But I'm using it in the sense of 
They are the chosen people. And now Jesus is the chosen elect one. And now anybody in Jesus, are their chosen elect ones as well. So this is kind of irrespective of your theological slant. That language of election just is, is the obvious language to use if you want to tie any people that didn't see the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures as their own. Now tie them back. That's what you use. That's the language. And that's the first thing he says about them in chapter one, to God's elect to the chosen ones mm. whose chosenness is grounded in all these in the, in the, in actually the Trinity in, in, in the nature yeah. of God. And, and if you're some person from Central America and you've made your way up into the States and you work on a team that builds houses and you mm. read something like this and just the, the practical illustration of, you know, I'm, I'm these precious stone, these, stones. Yeah. A builder. Stone being yeah. built. Yeah. It's it's really it's just Yeah, the metaphors are quite powerful. From that one to the shepherd metaphor to yeah. There's just a lot that goes on so, in this letter. So you're working in so you're you're working in First Peter and it, I'm writing a commentary for the new international commentary in the New Testament. Okay. Um yes and so you've been tasked with this yeah responsibility. I started writing and I've been working on a translation. I have to use my, I have to write my own translation. So I've been working on that. I had just translated through two, four through 10. So it's really fun to think okay. through that section in translation and figure out, you know, what I can do, what I can't do. I love using the language of trust now to those who trust now to those who believe, but it, it that language doesn't work all the way through. And I kind of like the idea of keeping the same. Yeah. For that term, keeping the same language. But in my commentary, I'll be emphasizing the importance of trusting as a key stance for part of what it means to believe or what pistis means. And so, When's yeah. What's the due date on this thing? Eh, well, yeah. It, when it's done, it'll be done. Okay. So you, so you don't a couple, have a. I do have a due date, but I just don't want to say it because I don't think I'm going to meet it. So oh, but okay. within well, the like, next it, year or so. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Like in the next year or so. So this is, and so real quick now, before we're done, just give us the, from the 30,000 foot, what's the process when they hmm. call you and say, Hey, <laughs> can you do first Peter to, to you hand it in? What are just like the mountain peaks? Like what's the process? How does that flow? Yeah. Well, um, it's a really good question. Um, because I need to do a translation, that's been preceding the other work. Um, but because I had done this lecture this fall on First Peter, the household code, I have a pile of books down here I'm reaching for that are on First Peter. And I've been doing a lot of reading in First Peter. And I that was the, the third lecture I planned. I had three lectures on embedded genres in the New Testament. It was a very exciting topic, Acadia College. But anyway, it was the last one I did so that I was starting to read in the secondary literature, commentaries books, monographs, journal articles. So I'm kind of thick in the reading and engaging, but I'm starting to write because if you wait too long to write, you'll think I can never write because, you know, yeah, yeah, that's um, funny. David Horrell and um, Travis Williams are coming out with the internet, uh, international critical commentary, ICC commentary this spring, volume one on first Peter volume one is chapters one and two oh, wow. plus the introduction. It's going to be huge, and it's half of First Peter in the introduction plus the first two chapters. So, you know, you could read forever, and they yeah. will be very comprehensive in their, you know, citations. I'm I'm excited to see what they say, but if I get it, mm. I'm going to feel incapacitated because I cannot write that much. I'm not allowed to write that much. Yeah, I have yeah. like about fifty words on each Greek word. That's my allotment. So that's good. It gives me a goal. I write down the amount, and I start writing, and I stop when I'm done with that word count and I, you know, figure out what I wanted to say that I didn't say and cut out the stuff that didn't matter as much. And so I'm going to keep on moving through and do a, a drafty draft. It's always a goal to have a drafty draft before you have a good draft. And then before you have a final product. So write a drafty draft and a good draft and then a final product. And I'll do that throughout. I've divided the text into the smaller paragraphs and I'm just starting to work through it. And I've done some translation, but not all of it. I'm getting the other thing you do is you um, you sign up for an elective for spring 2023 on First Peter. So I have 20 students joining me for a study of First Peter this spring, and that will be delightful, and it'll keep my head in First Peter all spring. Hmm. 
Nice. So that's the other thing you do is you just set up your writing projects with your electives. And students love it because I always say for lack of polish, since I don't know what the final product will look like, I'll make for, make up for it in sheer energy <laughs> about First Peter. I'm just excited to be in First Peter. So they get the energy and the excitement. And if it's not polished, they seem okay with that. So the uh, the Bible has 611,000 words in it. And let's see, just just the New Testament would be a hundred and forty thousand words. So what is a typical two hundred and fifty page book for word count? Any clue? Um I have known this in the past. Sixty, seventy thousand maybe? Hundred and twenty five thousand words is about is about Oh, 200, maybe 200 pages, 125,000 words. You know, it's about translates. To, yeah. Something like that. Really? I don't know. Okay. I mean, not so, really good with numbers. So you could conceivably write, you might be writing a commentary that's longer than the New Testament itself. And how many words do you say was in the New Testament? 125,000, 30,000. Yeah. It'll be about 150 maybe. Okay. Yeah. So, so what if. But that's what commentaries are. Right. Well, just think about it, though. If if God said, "Okay, I, I need to write, I need to write everything on Jesus that's going to be, you know, out of the seat, <laughs> that's going to yeah. be from from the throne," and and I've only got a hundred and thirty or forty thousand yeah. words to write, that's so limiting. And yet, there's been millions of words mm-hmm. written. On these hundred and thirty thousand yeah. words, it speaks it's crazy, to its, isn't it? it? Speaks to its relevance and its yeah. time timelessness. Time and it's not like I'm not saying people shouldn't write a lot of words on this. I'm just mm-hmm. saying the the um, density of yeah. the New Testament, yeah, and all of its roots, of course, again yeah. back into the old, is amazing. Yeah, mine will be a drop in the bucket compared to all the rest. And it'll help someone, I hope, and that's what I always shoot for. Yeah, yeah. Well, first Peter, cool, Janine. This is uh, this episode will be for those who want to think about first Peter and tip their toes into yeah. it as they're getting ready to to prep uh, a, a sermon series. You bet. On that, we could talk for hours and hours and hours. I think about we shouldn't, but the meaning yes, of it would these be fun. Passages. Yeah, it would be fun. Very good. Would be less helpful as we kept on going, probably though. <laughs> so, well, as long as great. we stayed rooted, yeah, that's yeah. that's pretty important. But yeah. hey, thank you. Um, this is the uh, spring twenty twenty three semester. Are you teaching classes this semester? First Peter, Senior Integrative Seminar, and Hermeneutics. Oh, Hermeneutics. Mm-hmm. I mean, your translation isn't any interpretation now, is it? All translation is interpretation. You know these things. I love that stuff. It, yeah. You know, the older we get, I think, oh man, in another lifetime, in another lifetime, that would have been so fun yeah. to do. Yeah. 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 Cool. Thanks, Janine. I appreciate Thank you joining you. me today. I'm glad to be with you. I don't know how many times that is for Janine to be on our podcast, but every single time I just totally enjoy talking to her. She has absolutely no airs about her. She just wants to talk about New Testament writings, the New Testament books, and she's just a delight to talk to. So I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did, and I hope that it gave you just a peek into uh, what a real person experiences when they have to write a commentary on a book in the New Testament. Sometimes we pick up these books, and and I don't know about you, but sometimes I imagine that these authors just kind of reached up through the clouds and just kind of downloaded this this book from heaven about one of the books of the Bible and how to study it and teach through it and preach through it and understand it and all that. And it's it's really not that at all. It's just an actual normal person who does a lot of work to understand the Word of God so that we can better be equipped to understand it and to teach it and to preach it. So again, Dr. Brown, thank you. Pastor, this was an episode in the seminary series. If you go on to 200churches.com and click on series, you'll find seminary series, which has all the episodes with seminary professors. 
and I'm happy to bring it to you free of charge. There's no course or credit cost. You also don't get any credits for listening to it, but I hope that you got some encouragement and some insight from it. Pastor, great to be with you. Hey, thanks for leading your church. Thanks for doing what you're doing in your 200 church. I don't know if you heard recently, but Carl Vader's was on the Church Leaders Podcast. If you don't listen to the Church Leaders Podcast, it is a great podcast. Carl Vader's was on it talking about how just because your church is small doesn't mean it's unhealthy. That would be a really encouraging episode to listen to if you've not listened to it. Uh, The date is right around the end of February 2023. Church Leaders Podcast with Carl Vader's. That's a great episode to listen to. Pastor, again, thank you for joining me. And I'll catch up with you on the next episode of the 200 Churches Podcast. My name is Angela, and I'm so glad you've stuck with us to the very end. We'd love to have you leave a rating or review wherever you listen to this podcast. Until next week, may God bless you as you lead and love His church.